This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world/donate or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Antonio Lopez. Uh, a democratic society really cannot survive information monopolies. You have to have diversity of opinions and diversities of uh, worldviews. Dr. Antonio Lopez is a leading international expert bridging eco-justice with media literacy. He is a founding theorist and architect of eco-media literacy. As a producer of dozens of youth media projects, Antonio has collaborated with the MacArthur Foundation, National Center for the Preservation of Democracy, National Rural Health Organization, and numerous First Nations across North America. He received professional training at the Center for Investigative Reporting in San Francisco, earned his BA in Peace and Conflict Studies at UC Berkeley, and MA in Media Studies at New School for Social Research. He earned a PhD in Sustainability Education from Prescott College. He has written numerous academic articles, essays, and four books, Media Ecology, A Multicultural Approach to Media Literacy in the 21st Century, The Media Ecosystem, What Ecology Can Teach Us About Responsible Media Practice, Greening Media Education, Bridging Media Literacy with Green Cultural Citizenship, and Eco-Media Literacy, Integrating Ecology into Media Education. He is currently Chair and Associate Professor of Communications and Media Studies at John Cabot University in Rome, Italy. Well, Antonio, thank you so much for spending time with us on For the Wild. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm so pleased to be here. It's an honor for me. Uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm just really honored to be on with you. Mm. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Well, to begin our conversation, I wonder if you could Introduce the term eco-media as it relates to our collective footprint and mind print. And I think our listeners will be more familiar with the environmental impacts of physical technology like cell phones and laptops, but less so with the connections between media making and resource extraction. So I'd love if you could elaborate on how ICT or the information and communications technology and digital information in particular, has transformed Earth. 
I'd like to start with a little context because I think one of the problems that I've encountered over the years is that people don't associate media with the environment. And I think there's some historical reasons for that. Part of it is the legacy of modernity, which views ideas and thoughts as separate from the body. And I think there's a cultural tendency to think of media as somehow in the realm of thoughts and ideas that they don't have a physicality. So the term ecomedia is a way of reframing how we think about media and to put it into an environmental context. The term is uh, something that has emerged out of some different academic fields, but in the, over the past 10 years, there's been uh, a coalescence around the, this concept of ecomedia studies. And there's other areas of inquiry related to that, like ecocinema studies, environmental communication, and so on. So the concept of ecomedia encompasses two areas or two spheres. One is the environmental impact of our gadgets and the infrastructure of ICT. And then the other aspect is the uh, ecological mind print, which I think we'll get into later. So just to start with the, the infrastructure, the environmental impacts of all of our gadgets and devices occur in many different stages of the production chain. You could start with the production of computer chips, which require massive amounts of energy and water. And in fact, uh, they're in Taiwan, which is one of the places where a lot of microchips are made. And you may have heard that there's a shortage these days. There has been a drought and there's, the government has had to make decisions about whether or not they should use water for agriculture or for chips. Thankfully, they're using it for agriculture, but that has led to a, a shortage in chip production. So that's one aspect of it. And then we also have to think about the, the, the media is maybe one way, one term that some theorists argue is that it's, media is really an infrastructure. And to, for us to access our data or our, our entertainment, to make our phone calls, any aspect of media that, whether it's for personal communication or mass, uh, mass consumption and um, information, it requires a massive physical footprint, a, a, an infrastructure, a global infrastructure of satellites, of antenna, of cables. The internet is a bunch of cables. It's running all over the earth, through the sea, across the earth. I mean, then there's uh, also you know, relays through satellites, and it's just a massive physical infrastructure, pipes, and so forth. And then there's the manufacture of the actual computers and the gadgets and what those resources require. And like the entire system that most listeners are probably familiar with, the global capitalist system, it's embedded in a system of extraction and a system of disposable populations. So in other words, a lot of the resources that we need for our media, whether it's energy to extract fossil fuels, for the energy to run our system, or if it's for mining, like such as conflict minerals in Central Africa, that system is justified through a general uh, position of disposable populations. In other words, that most of the places where the extraction occurs, occurs in low-income regions of the world, in uh, parts of the world where uh, people don't have political or economic representation, so racism is part of 
the the way that the system is structured. So we have the extraction of conflict minerals, let's say in Central Africa for our devices. And then those have to be transported and processed and to countries where our gadgets are assembled. It could be in China or Mexico or Philippines. And, and TVs and, and phones are made in different places. And then once they're manufactured, they have to be shipped all over the world. And that also has a big environmental impact. And as most people know, uh, our devices are not, they don't last forever. So at some point when our devices are no longer working or useful, they have to be um, thrown away, recycled. And if they are recycled, they are sent to countries to be further processed by uh, low-income populations, such as places in Ghana or India or China or Bangladesh, where people work in very incredibly toxic conditions to extract the, whatever precious metals are still there in the circuit boards of our old computers or phones. So that generally describes the overall environmental impact of the way our devices are manufactured. But there's one other aspect which people don't really realize, which is the misleading metaphor of the data cloud, because data is not like vapor in, this, in the air, it's not invisible, it's not just floating around. Data is actually physical. Information has a weight to it. Information exists on computers and the server farms that we use to um, store, process the information that we need to access for whether it's social media, streaming media, or whatever um, data that we need on our phones, those are vast, uh, the, the, those computers exist in buildings and there are thousands and hundreds of them connected through a vast infrastructure around the earth and they require massive amounts of energy and mostly they're powered by fossil fuels. In fact, the data cloud uses as much or produces as much CO2 as the aviation industry and it's predicted that it will increase or even double in the next 20 or 30 years. Mm. I think about this a lot, especially even with this podcast and with using technology for, quote, good or using technology for some type of climate justice and the the nuanced and contradictions within that is really important and also challenging to metabolize and I'm so grateful that you brought up the server farms because, yeah, I mean, all this cloud, I mean, the terminology of cloud, it does almost represent this vapor idea that it's just this weightless uh, information stored in this, in the sky, and it's not in the sky <laughs> at all. Um, so I'm just moved and challenged and grateful to be speaking to these truths because Technology is a part of so many of our lives at this point, and it's a part of a lot of our our activist lives. And I'd be remiss to not consider these things while doing this work. And yeah, I would like to ask a bit more about the material, uh, the minerals, and the raw materials required for our technology. You know, you spoke to the toxicity, but I I would love to even hear more about the toxicity at all stages of extraction production, distribution, the social ecological impacts, more details on that. 
due to some of these minerals also being conflict minerals. So could you speak to the most common elements that are essential for upholding the global ICT infrastructure? Yeah, so part of the problem of trying to do this kind of analysis and to be aware of the type of chemicals and minerals, et cetera, that are going into our gadgets is that in some ways you have to be like a, a chemist <laughs> to understand it. And thankfully there are activists and organizations out there that are monitoring and keeping track of some of these things because it's not actually easy to understand. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll get to the minerals in a minute, but you know, a lot of us don't know or understand what the impact of our wireless devices are, devices are on our physicality. Uh, the, for example, the impact of electromagnetic frequencies. And if you um, don't know whether or not EMFs cause cancer, well, there's a reason for that. And that's because just like, as in the case of the tobacco industry, the chemical industry and the fossil fuel industry, the, the industries that are um, promoting cell phone connectivity uh, have deliberately confused our understanding of the physical impacts of these devices on our bodies. So it's very hard for us to know. And, you know, I challenge anyone to open up their phone or read their, read the manual for the phone and try to figure it out because it's, they do deliberately make it very difficult to understand. So with that said, though, I would like to talk a little bit about your question or to respond to your question about the conflict minerals. So the, the primary minerals the, that are mined in particular in regions um, such as Central Africa, they're called rare earth metals and they're called rare earth metals because they're rare and they're not available in many places around the world. So because they're only available in particular places, the, the, um, the mining of these minerals can produce a lot of conflict because the control of these mines, of course, uh, is important for uh, economic and political power. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard about Conflict Diamonds, which was popularized in some films and talked about in the media for several years. So the primary conflict minerals are uh, tin, and tin is used to solder chips and wires. Tungsten, which is what helps our phones vibrate. Tantalum, which stores electricity and charges our phones. And then gold, which coats the wires. And then I want to add to that uh, another very important mineral, which increasingly is going to become uh, in high demand, is lithium, because lithium is the primary ingredient of batteries for our new electric cars and for solar power um, storage and also for the batteries of our devices. And even though lithium is more available and more accessible in many parts of the world, in some of the areas where lithium is mined, they also generate a lot of political turmoil and conflict, such as in Bolivia and Chile, which I think listeners of your podcast will be familiar with. And, um, but again, I, I want to put that in the context of the extractive or the extraction economy, which is, uh, we have to name it what it is. It's a neo-colonial economic system. And it's a continuation of the, the colonial system that was developed in the 19th century. Well, we can go back even further than that. But, you know, 
was predominantly spreading across the world in the uh, 19th century, 17th century, 18th century, excuse me. And uh, it's a, just a continuation of that process. So uh, these are foreign powers that are um, extracting the local resources to um, export them out for the global economy. So those minerals are the, the most important ones, the primary ones, but you know, you can, uh, if you read a bit of the literature, you'll find that, you know, in the 1960s, uh, most products that were manufactured had at the most uh, 40 elements. But these days, because of chemistry and because of advancements of engineering and so forth, you know, these there's hundreds of, of elements that are used to make or devices. And, you know, some of these, we don't even know what happens once they re-enter to the environment because you know once we extract these and put them into our our gadgets and of, of course our gadgets you know, a phone is typically has three main ingredients it has uh, metals glass and plastic and plastic is a, a petrochemical product you know all of these things once they re-enter the environment have a toxic impact whether it's when they melt down circuit boards to re-extract the metal in the case in the case of um, e-waste recycling, you know, you, you should see images of people or videos of people doing this. They're standing over open fires and they're just melting down these circuit boards and there's these black fumes coming off and they're not wearing any kind of protective gear. They're breathing all these fumes just to melt down for a few precious um, ounces of metal. And these chemicals also re-enter into the water supply. And some of these, uh, Again, I'm not a chemist, so I can't, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a menu of ingredients to tell you everything that's been re-entering into the system. But I can assure you that in places where these are manufactured and disposed of, they are causing huge damage to watersheds and to um, local health. Wow, there's so much food for thought in, in your responses. Well. I'd like to transition to discussing an often neglected facet of this topic, which is thinking about the total carbon footprint of the Internet of Things. In Ecomedia Literacy, you share, quote, By 2030, the global cloud may consume as much electricity as the entire country of Japan. Whereas in 2007, the carbon footprint of ICTs was 1%. By 2040, it will be 14%, half the size of the entire transportation industry. As the Internet of Things comes online, the problem will only be compounded. Cisco anticipates that we will have as many as 28.5 billion networked devices online by 2022. Consider the potential energy of the gadgets and cloud infrastructure needed to keep everything connected and running, end quote. Whew. So <laughs> I'm just wondering, yeah, if you could share with us the scale of our carbon footprint when it comes to the Internet of Things and how you're thinking about this in context to our general preferences in terms of, you know, needing some form of content streaming continuously in the background of our lives, whether that's through platforms like Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, you know, and the list goes on and on. Yeah, so this is an interesting problem, and I, um, and since I wrote this 
I've learned new things, which complicate this even more. So people not people are not really talking about the Internet of Things so much anymore, although it's definitely becoming a part of our lives in a way that is very subtle and quiet. And we're not even aware of it. And for those who don't know what the Internet of Things is, it's just that more and more products that we buy will have connectivity. And you may have noticed if you've gone to the store to buy like, you know, a toothbrush, <laughs> it's now a Bluetooth toothbrush or, you know, refrigerators are connected to the internet, you know, all these kind of things, which by the way, is a security nightmare, but I won't get into that because then if you can hack someone's toothbrush to get into your network, that could be a real nightmare for you. Oh my God. But <laughs> I mean, that actually sounds wow. like a scene out of like a, <laughs> you know, a farcical science mm. fiction written by Philip K. Dick. Mm. But in any case, yeah, so again, it's just the, the scale of the vast number of devices that are being made. And of course, everything that's made is going to get thrown away. So you have to think of this also in terms of waste. And uh, all this requires power. And the thing is that the, the issue of power and, and servers is slightly complicated by, and so I've been reading different studies and it's not really clear what the direction is. I mean, of course, it's the direction is always going to be the curve going up to consume more. But in fact, we're the, the, the curve is slowing down a little bit because the machines are getting more efficient. So they consume less power. So that's that's a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you, you get you you've everyone has found out that refrigerators are more efficient. But so, oh, I have a more efficient refrigerator. I'll just get a bigger one. And so it ends up consuming the same amount of power or our TVs are more efficient, but people are just getting more bigger TVs. So that's one of the one problem. But um, a lot of companies are aware of this problem, Google, Facebook, Apple, and they are making efforts to um, transition to clean energy. So that's a good thing. However, uh, that transition is still within the extractive economy. So even going into green energy and clean energy, which will be powering a lot of the servers of the future, they're still extracting resources to build those uh, build those technologies to for the clean energy, to build the windmills, to build the solar panels, to, to get the lithium for the batteries. So um, even though I'm encouraged by the the efforts of some of these big tech companies to transition more to clean energy, I don't necessarily feel optimistic about a change in the way that the global economy is structured. It's still within that system of exploitation. But one of the things going back to this research that is becoming maybe more alarming to me that I had not known about when I first, when I wrote this book last year is the impact of blockchain and Bitcoin and artificial intelligence because all of these processes require vast amounts of power. So people may not realize that when Google or Apple are training or, or Amazon are training their software to do voice recognition or facial recognition, they have to run computers like, uh, like warehouses full of computers, hundreds of computers for days, 24 hours, you know, months to process all this data and information to just do voice recognition. So 
all the hype around AIs, I find even probably more disturbing or problematic than some of the other sort of hyped up technologies that have been promoted in the past, like the Internet of Things. Like now I'm thinking that AI is going to be incredibly impactful. It is incredibly impactful. So, and then Bitcoin, which is another sort of revelation, the, the, the value of Bitcoin, strangely enough, is based on actually how much carbon they can burn because that's that's what makes it rare. That's what makes it material. That's like that's the gold of the currency is the actual burning of energy because the burning of energy there's a cost. And so when people set up Bitcoin farms, like they, they you know there's people send build these big factories with full of servers to do these complicated math math mathematical processes which create the value for the bitcoin um they go around the world where energy is cheapest and in the case of uh texas recently a lot of these companies texas has been promoting the fact that they have cheap energy and they're advertising themselves as a place to start bitcoin factories so a lot of bitcoin farmers i'm not sure the exact technical term (laughs) farmer seems like a kind of ironic name but uh, setting up their server farms in Texas. And Texas is saying, hey, we've got cheap energy. And what makes it cheap is because it's fossil fuels. And that's um, what they're burning. And that's the value that, or that's what generates the value for Bitcoin. So um, also online gaming. And yeah, you mentioned streaming. Streaming also um, has a pretty big carbon footprint. Again, I think some of these companies are trying to address this. Uh, I don't know if it'll be enough, but uh, it's certainly something that we should be concerned about. And, you know, thankfully there are organizations that are putting pressure on companies like Netflix and Facebook to transition into clean energy for their, um, for their services. So there, there is some positive movement, but uh, probably not enough at this point. Mm. Oh my goodness, this is just so deeply sinister. (laughs) This is really a twisted nightmare. Just hearing more about Bitcoin. I mean, I I knew it wasn't great, but holy moly, this is... Yeah, and Bitcoin actually consumes, um, like if you take Bitcoin as a whole, I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but apparently it consumes as much energy as some small countries. There's nothing I can change in the world I know there's nothing I can control Not the wind, not the rain, not the sunshine, not the sun
gosh, yeah, just thinking about all the resource extraction that goes into this is one thing, but thinking about the nature of continuous streaming and the reality that so many of us have become dependent on constant and multiple forms of stimulation. So I'd like to ask you about desensitization in media and what you have learned about eco-media in terms of sensory stimulation and the trajectory of the past couple of decades wherein different media outlets are constantly seeking to monopolize our attention. Yeah, thank you for asking that because this is a really important story that people are not really familiar with. And so, so let me start by saying that part of my opening statement was that people don't normally associate media with the environment. Well, another way to rethink media and to understand media in a new way is to recognize that media start as nerve stimulus that, I mean, just think about the information that our mind or the, our cognitive processes are engaging with, whether it's light or sound, these things are physical. You know, sound is, a, is touching our eardrums. And sometimes I like to joke with my students that, you know, well, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm actually touching you because my voice is, my sound waves are moving through the air and actually stimulating the eardrums. And then likewise, the light that's bouncing off me, stimulating the, the sensors in our eyes. And so all media starts off as, as nerve stimulation. And over time, um, as we've become more inundated with media, that also means that our nerves have been become more stimulated and more inundated. And an interesting exercise you could do is if you look at artwork from like medieval Europe, you'll notice that the, the, the images are, are very dense. There's a lot of going on. There might be some writing. There's a lot of details. There's a lot of different things. And you have to spend a lot of time with it. You have to look at it for, for a while to see what's there. You have to, you have to read it. And you compare that, the experience of looking at like medieval art with, uh, or let's say Tibetan sun mandala, something like that, to Instagram, where you're just, you know, with your finger scrolling through the screen, touch, 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 touch. And, you know, we look at it for just a second. The trajectory from that sort of slow seeing, slow, um, slow media, as some people talk about, to the present moment has um, happened primarily, you know, in the 20th century with the advent of mass media, where increasingly as we created new reproduction technologies, whether it's recorded music, photography, film, then radio, then um, TV, and, and now, of course, the internet. Every time we introduce these two uh, to our environment, our environments, our, our, our physical bodies get more stimulated. So, one exercise I like to do is um, show students the first James Bond trailer of uh, Dr. No from like 1962, which is about three minutes, which is fairly long, and have them watch that and then compare it with a trailer for the most recent James Bond movie. And to compare the experience of watching the first one with the most recent. And, you know, a lot of the comments will be that the watching the first Dr. No tra trailer, and you know, 1962 is not that long ago. Um, they find it torturous, you know, they find it's so slow and, and almost painful. 
Whereas if you watch like a more recent James Bond trailer, you'll notice there's in like an edit every half a second and it's, it's loud and it's fast and it's flashing and moving so quickly. And you know, how did we arrive to that point? Well, the, the, this idea, this concept of the creeping cycle of desensitization has to do with the fact that our media economy is based on attention. You know, what you pay attention to is what makes money. And you, there's so much competition for our attention that certain levels of nerve stimulus that we, we become accustomed to and it becomes normal. And then in order for a new media product to stand out from what is normal, it has to be more of something. It could be more violent, it could be louder, it could be faster, whatever. And that's why you start to see, basically since uh, the advent of film, increasingly um, film at its speeding up, although you know, I think for the probably the first 30, 40 years of film, they didn't speed up so much. But if you go back to the 1960s to the present, there's this increasing acceleration. So you know, every five, six years, something has to come along to stand out and to be the new thing, to raise above what has become normal. And then that becomes normal. And then something comes along and then it has, that becomes normal. So that's why, you know, uh, artists and filmmakers, and I'm, I'm focusing mostly on film, but we could apply this to advertising and TV as well. The, the, the levels of stimulation that we become accustomed to, we, it becomes normal and we, we don't even pay attention to it. So this is why a lot of people now, uh, you know, decry what the internet has done to our brains because we're, we're so accustomed to, to moving quickly and to scanning things and to, um, you know, there's also been studies that show that uh, our phones and, 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 the, and screens of computers are changing the way that we process information, the way that we look at things. For example, uh, people have a hard time focusing on, on the eyes when they talk to somebody. I notice this, like I have a hard time focusing on someone because my eyes are being more accustomed to looking at screens and it's really hard to adjust. So this, this issue of this um, increasing nerve stimulation, I think is a, a direct byproduct of the political economy of media, which is based on advertising and based on attention. And the thing I, I would like to point out is that it doesn't have to be this way because media does not have to be for, for profit. It doesn't have to be based on advertising. This is a particular model that emerged in the uh, 19th century, basically because uh, it came out of newspapers in, the, in, in New York who were competing against each other. And they realized that if advertising could subsidize the cost of newspaper production, they could sell a newspaper for less and they therefore could sell more newspapers. So that model of funding is what became the primary model for all mass media. And it's also the, the model for uh, social media and you know the, the current political economy of platform and surveillance capitalism. This is what we're experiencing now is, is not necessarily new. It's, it's just a more evolved model something that emerged from newspapers in the 19th century. So being aware of this problem then helps us recognize and understand that if we want to change this and we want to address this problem, one thing we have to address is the funding model 
for media. So I think anyone who's concerned about this problem, and I think we all should be, we also have to uh, put our money where our mouth is. We need to support alternative media. We need to support nonprofit media. We need to, um, and then also advocate for government regulation to break up media monopolies, uh, which drive this attention economy and to, to change the business model. Uh, you know, there's some people are advocating in the case of like companies like Facebook and Google that they get treated like utilities, like a public utility, which takes the profit motive out and therefore would change the way that they're structured and change the kind of algorithms that they use to that. Also, you know, another byproduct of this creeping cycle of desensitization is the emergence of the, the rage economy because what, what the way Facebook or YouTube make money is through, I put engagement in quotes, but they, you know, by enraging people, by getting people angry and upset, that's what drives their attention and keeps their attention on those platforms. And so if we, if this is disturbing to people and they want to change that, then we have to change the, the business model. You know, it might be a little bit harder to change the business model of the, of the big companies without government intervention. In fact, it would, does require government intervention. And it does seem like there's movement um, of late to reform Facebook, uh, but <laughs> I, I don't know, the genie's out of the bottle. I, I, I think that we have to really just go back to the drawing board and rediscover, and this is uh, related to the movement of slow media, which is that people are uh, like the movement of slow food, you know, to, to not buy a prepackaged or fast food, but to, to cook slow meals and to bring community back to um, eating and producing food. Likewise, we do that with media and have slow media like radio, for example, community radio, but making zines. Um, some people advocate for a return to uh, certain forms of analog media, like I don't know if, if people remember what it's like to play a record, you know, to put on the turntable and to read the record cover and just sit with an album and listen to it for what it is instead of just being some kind of um, algorithm generated playlist that the, the, the streaming service is producing for us, but actually have li to listen to something with intention or to go to a movie theater and, and watch a slow movie, you know, and, and be with it, even though it might feel painful and difficult because we've become so accustomed to to speed it up and you know i think that there are artists that are aware of this and there's actually even big mainstream movies for example i saw dune the recent dune production has elements of, of of sort of slow film slow experience of just absorbing what's going on and not being overwhelmed by uh technology and explosions and special effects although it does definitely have those elements but yeah, so we, we have to retrain our senses. And of course, this could be also addressed through certain forms of mindfulness and uh, you know meditation, but being outdoors, going outside. And it, it, it takes work, you know, if you have kids and the kids are really accustomed to these kind of like always on present of presence of gadgets. Um, it's, it becomes an addiction because you get the, the like a dopamine rush from, and and, and that's on. I'm I'm sure you're aware of this that these 
these uh, phones are developed, they're designed like slot machines. I mean, you think, you know, you drag your finger down from the top to refresh the screen. That's, a, that's like a slot machine. That was on purpose. I mean, that was designed exactly using the manuals that were used to design slot machines. So, and they're calibrated to give you just the right amount of stimulation of likes and feedback so that you keep coming back, that you want, to, you want some kind of affirmation or some kind of um, little sugar rush that you get when someone likes something. And it's designed that way. So another thing that people can do if this bothers them um, is, you know, there's all kinds of apps now. I mean, ironically, there's an app for everything. There's an app for mindfulness. There's an app for, um, I mean, there's, there's certain tricks you can do. You can like turn off your notifications. You can delete apps from your phone. You can dumb your phone. Uh, I noticed, for example, there's kind of a trend with some young people to just have clamshell phones that have, all they do is make phone calls and do text messages. So there, there are some, like, I think with some younger generations, uh, an awareness of this and a desire to get back to basics. I mean, also, the, there's been the return of cassette tapes, which I think is funny. But I think cassette tapes also have a big environmental impact. So I don't know if that's any better. Oh, goodness. There is so much in that response. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just... Um... Yeah, organizing everything that you just shared in my mind. And huh, I I do want to go back a moment to the Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Um, uh, gosh, I don't even know what to call them, but you write. Google's your, on. <laughs> go, yeah, 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 Google's on. And you write, quote, the fourth biggest tech companies in the world, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon are often excluded from what people imagine as media. Consider that Alphabet, owner of Google and YouTube, earns twice as much as Disney, and that Google and Facebook account for 85% of all online ads, a quarter of all worldwide media spending. We also have to add to the mix Microsoft, IBM, Netflix, and providers like the telecom giant AT&T and cable service Comcast in the United States, who are now the owners and distributors of media content, end quote. So the term mainstream media is thrown around very freely, but I wonder if you could share with us the connections between these big tech companies, their stake in media content, and platform capitalism. Yeah, so you're right that I think people misunderstand what they mean or they misstate what they mean by media. Uh, it's also could be generational. I, I think people who grew up in the era of, of traditional or what we call now legacy broadcast media, where you had a couple TV networks and a few uh, radio networks and two newspapers and a couple magazines. Certainly the media landscape is has transformed into a much more integrated high-tech conglomeration. Uh, some of these companies resemble the, you know, there's the two different traditional types of monopolies where you have horizontal monopolies where you, you own everything within that particular um, service or a vertical monopoly where you own everything from production to distribution. And the media companies these days have a little bit of both. And what is happening is that, 
again, this is within the larger trends of global capitalism, which is that all industries are conglomerating. So whether you're talking about um, agribusiness or pharmaceuticals or um, oil and gas production or media, they, they're all tending towards these sort of large behemoths, these monopolized. And there, there's a certain logic to that, which is if I'm speaking here in the case of, of uh, media, corporate media in particular, basically either you absorb and gobble up the competition or they do it to you. So it's, a, it's very much a doggy dog world. So um, the, the, the trend is continued expansion and monopolization. But what, what has changed a little bit over the past 20 or 30 years is it may be that you know certain newspaper companies would conglomerate, so but they would just remain within the newspaper industry, or within radio. The the radio um, conglomerates would expand. For example, you would have national companies that would buy up local radio stations, or you'd have uh, national TV stations buy up local TV networks or TV stations. But what's happening now is that they're all becoming much more integrated, so that a company like AT&T or Comcast, which are the distributors of the internet and of the content, are also buying the content companies or someone like Apple, which traditionally made devices. Now, you know, they have iTunes, so they, they sell distributed music and they have um, Apple TV because they're getting into the content business. So it's very hard to distinguish between, you know, what is it, what, what are they doing? What do they make? And um, this is very dangerous, of course, because you don't want to be uh, a democratic society really cannot survive information monopolies. You have to have diversity of opinions and diversities of uh, worldviews. And so, you know, there's different arguments that people make about the benefit or the dangers of monopoly. The benefit, people would argue, is that you get better service and it's more uniform or more powerful than the U.S. government. I mean, they could, you know, if, 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 if they decided to, they could just block out any information that they don't want you to see. They could, they could cancel politicians. I mean, they could do whatever they want. They, they're, they're playing, there's a very fine line between playing the game of democracy and, and subverting it. So, but then Time Warner and Disney, the problem with those companies conglomerating is that they limit the, the, the worldviews that are available to people. So this can have be impactful, whether it's the news or um, the kind of media that people are exposed to. Uh, I'll just give an example, and this is kind of an old example, but I'll, going back to after 9-11, when there was the buildup to invade Iraq and, and the invasion to Afghanistan had started, I don't recall ever hearing one single Afghani interviewed in corporate media. The only people that got interviewed were, were generals and it wasn't an interview on whether or not we should go to war, but how do we execute the war? And these industries are so intertwined um, that it's really hard to tell the difference between the board members and the stock and the shareholders of the media companies and the agribusiness and, and the pharmaceuticals. And actually, this is probably the most disturbing trend that people need to pay attention to. 
what emerged out of modernity was kind of like this this monocultural mentality or what Vandana Shiva calls the monoculture of the mind. And so monoculture agriculture is not much different than monoculture culture industry, you know, like the, the, the culture industry, which is a term coined by the Frankfurt School, the German Marxist in the 1930s and 40s who were studying mass media and fascism, talked about the tendency of capitalism to standardize culture to turn it into a product, to, to make it packageable and sellable, and to sort of reduce everything to like a formula. So naturally, this business mentality is applied to both culture, but food and science and medicine, you know, it, it, it crosses all industries. So there's kind of an interesting convergence um, that's happening between companies that have data, their currency data, like Facebook, the data people, data of people and personal uh, habits and behaviors, et cetera, and to integrate that data with um, agribusiness and the chemical business. Um, and so it's kind of in the background, there's these companies and the, that are being formulated to sort of leverage these relationships of technology and data. And um, uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft is in, in particular very much into this. So um, this is something to keep an eye out for. So we're kind of, and another thing that Vandana Shiva had talked about um, that, you know, after physical space has been colonized, now they have to colonize internal space. So a lot of the critics who've talked about surveillance capitalism also talk about surveillance capital, capitalism is, a, is also a kind of colonialism. And what they're colonizing is our attention. So, and, and they have to fracture it into more and more and smaller pieces because our attention is actually limited. It's a limited resource. We can only focus on so many things during the day. And if you fracture that even more, that's how you extract people. You know, that's, that's, that creates value. So the, the behaviors of all these companies are essentially the same. They just take different forms. Going back to the theme that I think I've been talking about throughout our, our conversation is it goes back to the, the economic model of extraction of neocolonialism and also disposable people. Hard times here And everywhere you go Times is harder Than they've ever been before And the people there drifting And door to door Something you had mentioned 
a few questions ago was, and now I'm forgetting the terminology, but something about rage or... The rage economy. The rage economy. Yeah, there's so many different uh, segments of the economy now. It's (laughs) really hard to keep track of. But you mentioned wanting to discuss the relationship between fake news, climate denial, and white nationalism specifically using the term petro-masculinity. So I would just love if you could take us into this wormhole and share how the fossil fuel industry has wrought havoc on our media in an attempt to sever themselves from accountability. Great question. And this is one of my favorite topics. I mean, when I say favorite, of course, I don't mean it in the sense of it makes me happy. (laughs) Um, But it's something that interests me greatly. And, uh, there's a term I coined, uh, which is fake climate news. And the reason I did that is um, we didn't talk so much about the, the kind of work I do, but I'm primarily a media educator. That's my background. And the the field of study that I come out of originally is called media literacy. And in the people probably have heard a lot about media literacy in previous years because with the advent of fake news, especially after the 2016 election and the concerns about disinformation and misinformation and and people being manipulated in social media, uh, fake news became like a media literacy moment. But in, in the way that that term has been leveraged and utilized actually has been done so in, in a way that benefits the technology companies. I'm going to get, I'm going to, going to get to the point about um, petrol masculinity in a minute, but I'm going to arrive to it a sort of a roundabout way. So one of the trends in media literacy is this idea of uh, responsabilization. This is a, a term that comes out of neoliberalism, and responsabilization is this idea that whatever problems exist in the world, it's it's the individuals have to solve them. It's, it's, so if we have this problem of fake news and disinformation, misinformation, it's not the responsibility of the companies, but it's the responsibility of the consumer. It's the responsibility of the user or the audience to discern what is fake or real, or it's the responsibility of the education system to fix it, but it's not the responsibility of the companies. And this is part of the larger trend of neoliberal capitalism, which is to increasingly externalize whatever problems they create to the public, to the government, but also to individuals and say, this is also related to the idea of the ecological footprint calculator was developed by British, British Petroleum because they wanted to take responsibility away from what they were doing to the environment and put it on the individual. So this is all by way of talking about the way that fake news has been discussed as a social and a health and a cultural problem has been to blame individuals for that. Now having described and set up this problem of fake news, I want to add the, the, the climate twist to it, which is that um, the fossil fuel industry, historically, actually, a lot of people say that, believe that it was, that the fossil fuel industry has copied the playbook of the tobacco industry, which is to um, confuse and to delay public's perception of the health dangers in order to prevent the government from regulating their industries. Um, the chemical industries and the and the, the tobacco industries perfected this in the 60s and 70s, so that 
the more they confuse the public about the issue, the less they're able to act on the issues. But actually they learned all these originally from the fossil fuel industry, which a lot of people don't realize uh, the, the public relations industry actually came out of the fossil fuel industry at the turn of the century. So those techniques that were developed by the fossil fuel industry 120 years ago were adapted by the chemical industry and adapted by the um, tobacco industry, but then got repurposed in the past 20, 30 years. So what has been happening is that in order to delay government intervention, to, to delay the public from trying to reduce and to um, transform the fossil fuel use uh, in our society, they've had to um, find ways to confuse the issue. And, to, and the way they've done that in particular is to um, intervene within a specific area of the society and the culture that could be leveraged, which is the, what I would refer to as the right-wing media ecosystem. So it's, it's right-wing radio, it's um, all the various different media platforms, social media platforms that uh, right-wingers use. And not surprisingly, the people who are conservative and lean towards sort of this right-wing ideology also are closely associated with white nationalism. And white nationalism has ties to the fossil fuel industry because again, we have to go back to the origins. Colonialism is white nationalism. And fossil fuel industry is an extractive industry that emerges through uh, the colonial mentality. And there is a, a relationship historically between white nationalism and the fossil fuel industry. And so it was a natural area for them to, um, to I don't know if infiltrate is the right word, but to leverage because there's, um, now we get to the term of petrol, petrol masculinity. The, if, you if you listen to the rhetoric of, um, of fossil fuel um, culture or uh, any kind of sort of Republican or conservative talking points about uh, jobs and about coal mines and things like that, they're, they're very much closely aligned to this idea of, of real jobs. And, and that, that's code for jobs for men, but for not just any men, but white men as well. And if you think about the actual active extraction, there, there is, it's, you know, you're, you're drilling into the earth. There's a, it's something that's um, sort of, if we're Freudian, we could say is, is, is almost uh, uh, sexual in, in a perverted way. And so there's been a lot of interesting studies that show the relationship between sort of like the, the, the culture of extraction, the culture of, of fossil fuel production is also associated with um, patriarchy. It's, it's associated with, um, in particular, white male working class groups. And, you know, I think people are probably familiar with the pro one of the problems in where extraction takes place is that um, there's an epidemic of missing Native American women and of sexual violence. It's not an accident because wherever they're extracting, sexual violence follows. So there's a close relationship between that. So what happens on an ideological level is that in those media spaces where um, science, denial of climate science is being promoted, it's being promoted in the same 
breadth as the white nationalist ideologies in, in patriarchy. And it, what, what they're finding is that, you know, what people's beliefs are about the environment, what people's beliefs about climate and climate science in particular, it's not whether they believe science or not, it's whether or not it aligns with their ideology. So the conservative ideology closely aligns with um, climate denial. It's, tri it's very tribal. And that also gets exacerbated by the other problems that we talked about with um, social media because of these algorithms. These algorithms um, promote and exacerbate these tendencies because it's within those sort of niche right-wing media ecosystem where all that rage is produced. And there are you know, lots of stories of people getting radicalized because they go on YouTube and they watch some kind of content that makes them kind of angry. And then the, the, the algorithm picks up on that and makes suggestions like, okay, now if, you, if that was got you engaged, now you should watch this. And what they find is that that, that material that they get exposed to increasingly gets more extreme. And so the oil or the, the fossil fuel industry is well aware of this. And so they're very good at manipulating um, search engines. They're very good at manipulating the way that their message um, appears first when, when people are searching for things, but then they deliberately fund, finance, um, and uh, promote think tanks that produce the sort of the intellectual, if you want to call it that, the, the, the ideas that are disseminated in that right-wing um, ecosystem. So it all gets kind of mixed up, and, which is uh, unfortunate. Now, one thing I, I will say that uh, something, I think probably everything I've been saying has been pretty depressing. I have some good news, which is that Google recognizes this problem and has uh, recently, as in like a few weeks ago, vowed to um, purge climate disinformation from their platforms and from the search engines that they're not going to promote it and also on YouTube. Uh, Facebook said they would do this, but apparently from more recent studies I've seen, they haven't done that. But, you know, these companies know where this information is coming from and they are amplifying it. And if they know how to amplify it, they know how to turn it off. So there, there are solutions, but you know, it's, you're going up against a, a very well-financed um, industry that really created public relations. They, they're, they're, it's the dark arts, they produced it. And it's so deeply inf infiltrated our society that um, they've literally changed our culture, unfortunately. Have they ever? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have this question that has been really alive for me, especially over the last year. And it does seem that climate change coverage is now featured in mainstream media much more often these days. However, I think we could agree that the type of coverage is still significantly lacking. And I feel similarly about this sort of phenomenon that is happening via social media where climate change content is really being capitalized upon because it's trendy and it can be used to accrue social and sometimes even financial capital. In Ecomedia Literacy, you share, quote, the majority of environmental discourses are ambivalent because 
depending on their use, they can promote an assortment of politics that range from anthropocentric to ecocentric, but they mostly support the mainstream. Remember that conservatism and preservationism are considered part of the status quo. Though in some cases, the aim of a discourse is to critique environmentally destructive practices, it might also be used to promote reform-oriented policies, such as conservatism or greenwash accompanies environmental practices that are ultimately anthropocentric, end quote. And I wonder if this is something that has come up for you in terms of how topics enter the mainstream media and how we can strive to contribute to eco-media systems that don't seek to dilute and profit off these topics, but instead actually create change at the scale that is so desperately needed. The, the title of the book is Eco-Media Literacy, and my aim was to teach people the skills to be able to critically engage these kind of discourses. So that particular passage that you read brings to mind an example that I like to teach with, which is um, Chipotle, which is that um, fast food burrito chain that puts itself to the public as sort of environmentally friendly and, and healthy, which probably compared to McDonald's, it's probably a little bit better than that. But they put together some very clever ads. Uh, I don't know if people saw those that were online. There was like short animations and they sort of represent themselves as sort of aligning with the small farmer. And they use these kind of discourses that they're critiquing industrial agriculture. And so they sort of create this contrast of like, we're the, we're the family farm friendly corporation. We're not one of those guys, the big evil agribusiness uh, companies that give chemicals to their animals and all that stuff. And it may be true that Chipotle is probably a little bit better than a normal company, but it's, it's a kind of greenwashing that I think hides the fact that no matter how good a company like Chipotle wants to be, they're still a fast food company. And it's still, is that, it's kind of similar to the problem I was talking about, like, yeah, we can transition to clean energy, but if it's still an extraction economy, we're not actually changing anything. So what is going on here is that we have all these discourses because everyone wants to appear like they're doing something good for the environment, um, but they're not necessarily changing their actual practices. So we have to be really good at identifying this. A term that we're gonna be hearing a lot, especially with the upcoming COP talks in, in, um, in uh, Scotland, is everyone wants to be net zero, but no one really knows what net zero means. And you know what, just because a company says they're net zero, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're net zero. And, this is going to be incredibly problematic. You know, everyone's going to be net zero, but no one's going to actually be net zero if you get my picture. So we have to develop the techniques, the skills in order to analyze that, to deconstruct that. And this is very much related to going back to what I was saying earlier about the, the fake news panic. You know, everyone realized, oh my God, we're being inundated with all this false and misinformation. We need to teach people how to read this stuff and how to understand it. And I, I definitely value those skills. So I don't want to say that, you know, people shouldn't learn these things. But 
if it just comes down to conscious consumerism, we're just still consumers. It's still the same system. And that's not what we need. We need to transform our economies and our societies to something you know much different. So I think we really have to be alert and on our toes with these green discourses. I think we need to train ourselves on how not only to interpret, but also how to communicate in ways that are, are authentic and that represent real positive change, you know, and to to not be co-opted and not use the certain, you know, these kind of rhetoric that corporations are using. And then they just end up absorbing our own critique, which historically is usually the pattern. So we want to try to avoid that. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Justin Cromer, Sam Sycamore, and Marty O'Reilly in the Old Soul Orchestra. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassfell, and Julia Jackson. 